We are very excited to announce we're hosting our first Meetup in the Left Field 2022 on October 21st in Columbus, Ohio. We have Zoomed together for two years, and it is beyond time to meet face-to-face. The primary purpose of this meeting will be to meet your fellow left fielders, as well as to meet and interact with some of our community's favorite sponsors and professionals. The plan is to host a special infielder event Thursday night, October 20th, which will include appetizers, drinks, and the opportunity to connect with your Zoom friends. That will be followed by a full day of networking and meetings on Friday, October 21st. The cost to attend the event is $250. Members of the infield community will get a $100 discount and a free month of membership if they sign up before September 15th. We hope to see you soon in the left field. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Yeah, I think there's definitely a very good reason why you want to be invested with someone who specializes. And, you know, I think for me, I've specialized as operator as a big miner. One thing that I would say to diversity and the strength of that is you can see all, you can see multiple angles and being able to understand things from the best perspective of an investor and not just somebody who knows the technology of Bitcoin mining and ASICs and hash rates and all these other specifics that are related to the industry. You now can think like an investor and make economic decisions like an investor. And you learn that by investing, not necessarily just in Bitcoin mining, but in other assets leveraging cost uh, depreciation and, you know, accelerate depreciation for Bitcoin miners where we can set up 100% of it in the first year. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at tribevest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by Tribevest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. Hi, I'm Kenny Wolf. You're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm excited today to have Ng Tang with us. He's an experienced private fund manager with over $220 million in assets under management and 12 years of private market and real estate investing experience. He's focused on cash flow investing to create passive income, so that's right on with what we're doing. He's the founder and CEO of Tozy Capital, a private 
equity investment company focusing on multifamily, senior living, Bitcoin mining, DeFi, and other private equity alternative investments. There's a ton to talk about. Ang, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, so the first question we always ask is we want to understand your journey a little bit. I know you have a really fascinating journey, but can you talk about where you started and, and include how you got into finance, how you got into real estate and the syndication? We'd like to hear all of it. Yeah, if I may, I would love to go all the way back to the beginning. You know, important to understand, you know, our personalities of form. And I was born in a refugee camp in Thailand. My parents are Cambodian. We escaped the Khmer Rouge and the genocide that was happening there. And I was, I have cute pictures of myself chasing chickens and, and in straw huts. And, but I also have stories handed down from my parents of escaping some unbelievable atrocities and some very sketchy times in my life. We had the fortunate privilege, and I was grateful for this, to migrate to immigrate to America when I was three years old. And I came here when I was three years old. My parents did not have any education any high school education, any elementary school education. They, you can imagine they were the fo- type of folks that had to walk seven miles a day with a stick and two buckets of water to get water from the local well. And my, my mom still has back pains from that experience. Uh, and so we, we grew pretty much nothing, which sort of formulated my entire mindset of scarcity, right? When you have nothing, you seek security. I was fortunate to be very lucky, uh, good at math and very good at economics. And I grew up in LA. I day traded when I was in high school before anyone had any phones or internet uh, like that. It was for finance and economics. Ivanka Trump was one of my classmates. And I also played poker and paid my tuition through that. So I've always been pretty good at math. And then I got into investment banking right after that. So this whole story, initial story, has really been about me trying to find a way to make money when I didn't have money. When you don't have money, you want security. And so you chase that security. My, my North Star has been getting my family out of poverty. And I succeeded at that fairly, at a fairly young age. But then the financial crisis happened. And that changed my entire thinking of being super reliant on equities or one source of income because I saw my 401k drop by 50, 60%. And I was young back then and I have all the years ahead of me to rebuild that. But it just didn't give me a sense of security. And so when I first started looking at real estate around 22, I bought my first apartment building when it been my first triplex. It was cash flowing very well. It was a 10% cap rate. I was like, okay, this is a really great deal. I can make $1,000 a month. And for me, that was a lot of money. For me, that was security. And so chasing after cash flowing investments has been my source of passion and security. And it has allowed me to also take more risks in my career. I think we don't have to be one note. We don't have to just passively invest. We can actively invest, but also actively participate in other ventures. I have had many opportunities working and going to the Peace Corps, for example. I went to the Republic of Georgia, 2010, right after Russia invaded Abkhazia and annexed a part of Northern Georgia. Very familiar times. I remember seeing tons of refugees. My parents were dismayed and just flabbergasted that I would go to a third world country that they escaped from to a war-torn country with refugees. I thought that was, it made sense to me. But I did that because I also had the sense of security of some real estate that I had back, back home in America. 
met my wife there and then went to, after I left Peace Corps, went to, uh, back to LA and worked in gaming and worked in media and private equity and then in tech, had leadership roles most, most recently. I was leading data science at Siri, analyzing trillions of records of data. So a lot of people say a lot of crazy things. <laughs> I bet they do. <laughs> yeah. It was a fun time and, and to, to do all those things and essentially retire at, at mid-30s, having built a substantial amount of wealth for myself. But also the whole time since I even started Peace Corps, I've been buying real estate and I've been an investor. So I've been an investor since 2009. So I'm a fairly young person still. I'm under 40. But I've also just been really passionate about finding these secondary sources of income. And that materialized in building a fairly large private portfolio of real estate investments. And then I started to talk about all these things I was doing to all my friends and family that were very smart engineers working on projects and products that affect billions of people's lives. And the smartest people in the field, they didn't know anything about investing. They just put the money in the 401k. They just trusted a investment advisor and they didn't know anything about private deals or real estate or cap rates or the tax advantages specifically of real estate. And I had this Jerry Maguire moment around three years ago, where essentially I thought about all these tax advantages and all these great ways that I was doing for the last 12, 13 years. And I wanted to just put, publish it. And so I created a deck and I circulated the deck to all my friends and family and all my colleagues. And it really helped highlight that a lot of people didn't know this stuff and that people wanted to participate in this, but they didn't know how to. So that's when I started Tozy Capital. Interesting. So that's a great story, obviously. I mean, to come from where you came from and, and to get where you are now is, is amazing and, and a credit to you for sure. The one thing I'd, I'd like to dig in a little deeper on is, you know, the, the streams of income. I love the way you said that, you know, it allows you to take chances. But how did you figure out that real estate was the way you were going to get these streams of income. And what made you think, because most people, you know, having great jobs like you had would just kind of coast. You know, I did for a long time. Hey, I got my 401k. I'm making a great income. Never once did it cross my mind that maybe another stream of income would be helpful. So it's kind of two questions, but how did you figure out real estate and how did you figure out, yeah, multiple streams of income will give me more security? And so you're right. I, I had a very great job at Apple. In fact, my wife, when we left in the middle of pandemic two years ago, my wife was four months pregnant and I was like, what the heck are you doing? Leaving a job that's paid you nearly seven figures and leaving fairly substantial, you know, going in handcuffs. The reason why I was able to even get there was because I've always thought about real estate and investing as sort of an ability to take those risks to move laterally or move to different roles which is very critical to go up in you know, a career ladder. And so why did I think of real estate? I think those are such a natural thing for me. I really enjoyed the physical aspect of creating value and creating a home. And I could see and materialize it. And it was, I love spreadsheets and understanding the market because I was in, I was always looking at data in my full-time job as an investment banker. And then really seeing that there was all these asymmetric sources of information. You could find good deals in the pool of, of bad deals. I don't think you get the same chance really to do that in public market equities. You know, I'm not a public market equities guy. You ask me what's the price of this stock and or what's the price of that. I don't know. It's not my uh, expertise right now. 
But I know that you know when I look at a neighborhood and I see a property that potentially has this issue and that issue, I know that it can be resolved fairly easily and that the market's underpricing it. I also thought that I wanted an advantage when I did a deal. And so having that kind of asymmetric information allowed me to go in and fairly confidently do it. And when I first were able to do my first one, I was able to then do the Burr method, which I've learned that definition later in life. I was just like, okay, let me just paint the cabinets, redo the floors, increase the rent a little bit, and then refinance out. And then I bought another property, you know, shortly after. Yeah. And just so everybody knows, the Burr method is a kind of a bigger pockets term. It means buy something and then rehab it, rent it out, refinance it, repeat, right? So the goal is to get all of your equity out. And I mean, that, that's a great model. You know, you talked about your colleagues and your family, you, you kind of spread the word, right? So why don't people like your colleagues, like your family, like my colleagues, like my family, friends, why don't they understand the benefits of passive income and multiple income streams? How do we, I mean, part of the mission of Left Field Investors is to share that, hey, go out and get some multiple income streams. It, it, it's a good thing, you know, for a lot of the reasons you already talked about. But why do you think most people don't understand the benefits of that and need kind of either a push or someone like you to, to show them and say, hey, come with me? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think when people try to push somebody to do something, it's kind of difficult. I think the way I always position myself and really just talked very naturally to my fellow colleagues, you know, I, I was running a 1500 person real estate investing group at Apple. I've always just talked about, here's what I'm doing, here's what you could do. It's more about leading by example and being an aspiration. Why most people don't do it? Because I think a lot of people just focus on their lives and people who do have money, they've made money because they're really great at their singular purpose or their job. And it's very hard to, you know, think of multiple things at once. And when the market's good, you kind of think, ah, what's, you know, 10% cash and cash, 5%, whatever it is, right? Like I'm making like, maybe my stock went up 40%, right? They don't think of the downside. They don't think of, you know, the other side of things. It's all just like asymmetric in nature. So when you perceive something, you can't really see the other side of things. And they don't understand the taxes. And so the way I led with everything was, hey, these guys pay a lot of taxes. You know that in real estate, there's great ways to defer and leverage depreciation and other you know, uh, tax advantage natures because you're an investor now. That's really a much better source of taxable income or tax deferred income. Yeah, and, and that, that is a huge advantage, the tax situation. I want to move and kind of change pace a little bit and understand Tozy a little bit more because you, know, you don't often see an operator that has such different asset classes, senior living, multifamily, Bitcoin mining. Those aren't super related to each other. So are you the operator slash asset manager for these deals or are you raising capital and putting money into another operator's deals? How does that work? Yeah, so every one of our deals, we are very closely tied to. Uh, Bitcoin mining specifically, I run the whole company. I run the Bitcoin mining operations. I spend probably half my time working on that. And we're always making deals on that side. And I've been in Bitcoin since 2013. So uh, any volatility seems kind of, funny to me because it seems all kind of high. On the other side of things, you know, we, I'm not in every area. I have two young kids. I'm in San Diego, California, and I don't have, I can't go to, and I don't invest in San Diego, California. I don't invest in California because of probably a lot of people understand why that would be the case because I like cash flow and I invest in Texas and Missouri and Florida. And so I have to rely on operational partners that do what they do really greatly. And so I like to invest in people and in businesses. 
in specifically in multifamily, we we're doing a deal, closed one in Houston, Texas, 319 unit apartment building, a great place. And our part, operation partners are the ones who are mostly managing it. We are asset managers of it, but they're mostly managing it. For our senior living, which we have a portfolio of 13, and we're, you know, we're developing seven of those, we're very actively involved on the financials and accounting and financing. But I'm not an HR person. When it comes to senior living, it's a lot of, a lot of it is about HR. You got to hire the right amount of care, amount of staff. You have to make sure that they're all happy and then they take care of the, the residents because you're essentially providing a full-fledged service where you can get four to five times the amount of rent that typical similar style apartment building would pay, but for only three to four times the cost. So you have much better NOIs. So I'm just naturally a, a person who likes to, I think, generate cash flow and make money. I think I love to, you know, recently did a couple of deals in mineral rights and oil and gas. It's all stems from me personally, a very interested investor. I like to invest. I put my own money into stuff and then I figure out, okay, how can I scale this? Is this scalable? Can capital scale it? Can other types of things scale it? How does that scale help the economics of the deal? And how does a like a limited partner like myself vet a sponsor like Tozy, where it, you're so diversified, right? You're in so many different things. I like to have, you know, invest in somebody who's focused on one thing because then they're going to be really good at that, like you with Bitcoin mining. Now, I understand you probably hire experts and people that are, you know, understand the other asset classes, but how, what questions should an LP ask and how do they figure out is Tozy or whatever, anybody who's such a diversified operator, how do we figure out that this is the person I want to invest with or this is the company I want to invest with? Yeah, I think. There's definitely a very good reason why you want to be invested with someone who specializes. And, you know, I think for me, I've specialized operator as a bigger miner. One thing that I would say to diversity and the strength of that is you can see all, you can see multiple angles and being able to understand things from the invest perspective of an investor and not just somebody who knows the technology of Bitcoin mining and ASICs and hash rates and all these other specifics that are related to industry, you now can think like an investor and make economic decisions like an investor. And you learn that by investing, not necessarily just in Bitcoin mining, but in other assets, you leveraging cost uh, depreciation and, you know, accelerate depreciation for Bitcoin miners, where we can sell, sell it all 100% of it in the first year. I learned that from real estate. Most of my Bitcoin miner friends and who run multi-billion dollar companies, they still don't think like that. They don't think like an economist. They don't think like an investor. So they need to have different thought process. But to answer your question, you know, I would definitely make sure that if you're investing with any, any sponsor, understand what your stake is. in Because I think it always highlights confidence if they're putting in their own money, if they've invested before in this specific sponsor or this specific operator, or is this not the first time? Have they had experience with it? Because what the sponsor is doing, if that's the case, they're vetting it for you. They're presenting you the deal. I get approached by operators all the time for deals that I think are pretty good, but I need to bet them. I need to. So a lot of my diligence now is vetting investments, both from a personal perspective, as well as one that I think could fit for our audience at Tozy. The first annual Spartan Investor Summit is an exclusive two-day experience on California's iconic Lake Tahoe. 50 serious investors and eight amazing speakers are gathering at the Landing Resort and Spa for this intimate event focused on knowledge sharing, meaningful connections, and recession-resistant investment strategies that will help you live your best life. 
Featured speakers include Clint Coons, Rich Fetke, Rom LaPointe, Vicki Schiff, and Toby Mathis, along with Spartan's own Scott Lewis, Ryan Gibson, and Ben Lapidus. If you're ready to learn more about recession-resistant investment strategies while meeting like-minded leaders from around the country, click the link on our podcast page to learn more about the sessions, speakers, and adventures that await at the Spartan Investor Summit. Space is limited, so don't wait. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. I'd like to talk about Bitcoin mining because it's super interesting to me. I'm, I'm an investor in, in your fund. And, you know, can you explain what Bitcoin mining is? I mean, we I think most people are familiar with at least what Bitcoin is. And the price has dropped a lot. You talked about volatility. So that, that that makes a difference, right, in the returns of the Bitcoin mining. But can you just give an overview of what Bitcoin mining is and, and why it's a kind of real estate related investment? Yeah, I love this topic. Approach Bitcoin mining as similar to real estate. You're essentially buying a hard asset miners and they're not people, they're computers, they're supercomputers. I, I get this question a lot and people are like, do you work in 24-7? We do work in 24-7 because essentially what we're doing is a computer is plugged in, they're very loud, they're very noisy, and they generate hash rate, which generates Bitcoin. Every 10 minutes, 6.25 Bitcoin is rewarded to one lucky miner, one lucky machine that essentially help create the system and networks that allow us to define what the blockchain is. And so every time you send a Bitcoin to somebody, you know, a miner is validating that transaction. It's sort of like the Visa network. There has been 19 million Bitcoin that has been mined so far, and there'll be 21 million Bitcoin total. So 2 million Bitcoin left to be mined, and it'll take 120 years to mine those remaining Bitcoin. As a Bitcoin miner, what you do is you try to, the economics of Bitcoin mining is you try to find very energy efficient, very productive supercomputers, ASICs, Bitcoin miners, and plug them into very affordable, very cheap energy. Because essentially what you're doing is you're transforming electrons into Bitcoin. It's a very interesting concept. And every second, every minute, you're actually getting Bitcoin because we all aggregate ourselves into a pool. So when one lucky miner gets 6.25 Bitcoin, everyone in that pool, meaning that, you know, that joint collective, gets a percentage of that. So there's no like, so it's very, very typical. It's like every day I see, okay, I get like four Bitcoin every day, four Bitcoin. And why I think that it's like real estate is because first of all, you want to make sure that you know you have very low costs, you have low OPEX. And when prices where it is right now, your, your profit margin is close to like 25, 30%. But when prices is higher, your fixed cost is still very low, but your profit margin is more like 75%. And you can depreciate the miners which allows you to really take advantage of a lot of great benefits of deferrals. And I bet there's no uh, recapture on that either, right? Because those, uh, those miners depreciate to nothing, correct? Exactly. You want to run them to the ground. Yeah, exactly. So I want to un- understand this a little bit better because this is super complicated for people like me. You said one lucky machine gets the six and a half Bitcoin. So my first, there's two part question. My first question is, 
how do you position yourself so you're that lucky machine? And are some machines luckier than others because they're, you know, outfit better? Maybe, I don't, I don't know. And then the other question is, how do you get a pool together where everyone agrees, hey, whoever's lucky machine, we're going to share all this out? Yeah, so 6.25 Bitcoin and these pools exist already. So there's no, probably 99% of all Bitcoin miners are plugged into pools. You essentially, what you're doing is you're delegating your computing power to the pool. And so the pool is a collective and I'm in Foundry Pool, which constitutes around 25% of all miners. So essentially 25% of the time, we'll, we will be getting that 6.25 Bitcoin, which helps us with spreading out our variability. Uh, so every 10 minutes, 6.25 Bitcoin gets released and that pool essentially just automatically disseminates to your computer. And it's based on how much computational power your computer, your supercomputer generates, called a terahash or hash rate. And that hash rate essentially is all part of a, a complicated mathematical problem to solve a Rubik's cube of, of an equation that tries to make it every 10 minutes. Meaning that if all of a sudden 50% of all machines goes away, it would take 20 minutes to solve this mathematical problem on average. And the blockchain network knows this. It's coded into, into what Bitcoin is, which is what I love about Bitcoin. It's, it's all code. It's all finite. It's all transparent and understandable. And what I refer by that is if Bitcoin price goes down, guess what? A lot of miners who are less energy efficient or have higher costs of mining might unplug. And that's what has happened over the past few months. And so when miners unplug, more the same amount of bitcoin gets released it's just to fewer people so we actually make more bitcoin so it's an interesting correlation here where if bitcoin goes down we make more bitcoin unfortunately the bitcoin is worth less but if bitcoin goes up more people more computers will be plugged in more chips will be ordered more you know more production will be ordered more capital will be spent and there'll be more competition uh, so that every 10 minutes that fine-tunes itself every block reward so that it's essentially always 10 minutes or at least very close to 10 minutes. It's a very self-correcting algorithm. I went pretty deep into that. I'm not sure if I explained it very well. Yeah, no, it's just very interesting because I'd never understood exactly how it happens. And I, I still don't understand exactly how it happens, but I'm, I'm getting closer. And I think that's one of the things with Bitcoin and crypto and things like this is it, it's very complicated and hard to understand. And each conversation I have, I get a little bit closer to understanding, oh, okay, this is one more thing that I kind of understand. So the Bitcoin mining and energy, you know, six months ago or so, there was everyone was talking about how Bitcoin is killing the environment because it's using so much electricity. But then you, you hear people on the other side, Bitcoin people saying, well, no, actually, Bitcoin is helping solve some energy problems and is a storage of energy. So can you talk about that and and has that and it seems like that view has changed a little bit just over the last few months of bitcoin as a huge energy waster might not be a true story so bitcoin is one of those things where it's going to probably transform the way we think about energy because essentially you don't necessarily need to be in san francisco dallas you know a major city to make bitcoin you want to be close to the source of production and usually the source of production of energy isn't where the source of consumption of energy. So we have long transmission line and we have grids that essentially move that electron over to the grids and then transform them into, so that you can go to people's houses. And around 30 to 40% of all electricity gets lost due to that delivery. So we're actually going to get our miners essentially plugged in very closely 
two, where the production is. So one, that helps us get as low a cost as possible, reduce our transmission costs, and essentially capture energy that would have probably been you know, squandered or lost because of the grid. Uh, the second part is, I'm working with some power plants right now and some renewable energy sources. What Bitcoin miner, mining does is that it's a battery for energy companies. What I mean by that is, when the power goes very when there's so much energy being generated and if you think about texas there's a lot of solar i'm not sure you know that there's a lot of solar there's a lot of wind and it's great when it's always sunny and windy at the same time so and it's always not windy and sunny at the same time so at certain times it just gets you know there's just too much energy well bitcoin mining becomes a great battery source because it's great sink of that energy and we actually allow you know, the economics of renewable energy power plants to be much better. And there's power plants being made right now because they know that Bitcoin mining exists and that they have a contract with Bitcoin miner to consume a part of that energy for a certain amount of price because we're just trying to get electrons to turn into Bitcoin. So how does that, it seems to me, and I've heard this explained before, but it seems to me that if you're using more energy, that's not really helping. But what happens is a lot of energy is needed. The Bitcoin miners maybe don't use as much. And when there's extra, that's when they use more. Is that kind of how it works? Yes, you're right. Uh, so just to simple, simply, when there's a lot of demand for energy, like when there's a major storm or when there's a heat wave, our miners can be shut off. It's not great because you know every second we make Bitcoin, every 10 minutes we make Bitcoin, but we can essentially sell the, the energy back to the grid. So a lot of Industrial scale mining looks like nowadays is essentially just power arbitrage. We're arbitraging in power. When power is very low, we consume it and we convert it to Bitcoin because we can essentially buy it at a very low cost and we can sell it at a very high cost based on the fact that we made Bitcoin out of it. And then on the opposite side, when energy goes up uh, because of all these natural issues, uh, or sorry, when energy goes up, yeah, we then stop mining um, and then we pay, we sell back the energy to the grid. So we're actually a very natural complementary to the energy grid. And do you stop because you have a contract with the energy company saying at peak times you're going you're gonna to stop using energy or do you do it for economic reasons? You do it for economic reasons. So we can shut down for four hours a day during three months of the year for five days a week. You can guess what those days are, what hours those are. It's very hot days in Texas, for example. And that constitutes less than 1% of all the hours of the year or around 1% of all the hours of the year. And we can save around 20 to 25% of our overall electricity costs. Now, why is everyone going to Texas? Because we've heard Texas has problems with their power grid. And, you know, I think to the person that doesn't know very much, like me, you think all these miners going there, that's going to make the situation worse. But you hear Bitcoin people talking and they say it actually makes it better because of what we just talked about, where when they need more electricity, the Bitcoin miners can just turn off and then boom, you already you have some some more energy. But why, why Texas? Why is it so popular? Well, one, it's a deregulated market. It has its own grid that's self-contained. So when power is needed, uh, generated in Kansas, it then it gets sent to Oklahoma. In Texas, it's all generated in, in Texas and, and consumed in Texas. There's a lot of renewable energy in Texas, and it's all in West Texas and North Texas, and it's all kind of in the plains of Texas where there's not that many people. Those energy sources aren't very economical unless you have more consumption at those off-peak hours and right next to the source. So the grid of Texas, any stories have you heard of issues with the grid, is just that it's the grid. It's not the production of energy. Texas produces way more energy than it can ever consume on 
in totality. It's more about connecting and transmitting those lines of energy as well as the right timing of when those energy needs to be consumed. So why doesn't somebody like yourself, who's a Bitcoin miner, why don't you move to the, I don't know, the plains of Oklahoma where the wind blows all the time, put up a couple of windmills and just use that power 100% for your Bitcoin mining? That's certainly one of the projects we're working on, specifically actually in Oklahoma. When, you know, essentially it's windy 40% of the time. So you're not really, you know, online all the time. And so when you're not online, you need to consume grid power. So it's going to be a mix of very cheap renewable energy and then a mix of maybe more expensive grid energy. Okay, interesting. And uh, miners, what's the lifespan of the miners? And then also the lifespan of the investment, right? So if I invest in bit in your Bitcoin mining fund, how long do those computers last before they are obsolete or stop working? And how long does the syndication go? So it's the same answer. It's going to be essentially the miners should last around three to five years if taken care of right. And I have historical evidence of miners, especially ones I own now that are six and a half years old. And it's all going to come to profitability. If Bitcoin is at 100K or 200K in five, six years, these miners will be very profitable still, even though there'll be newer generation machines, more efficient machines in the future. And so the fun lasts as long as the miners last. Interesting. Okay. So how do you see the drop in Bitcoin price that, you know, has, it was up to 60 some thousand and now it's 24 or whatever. How do you deal with that? How does the fund deal with that? And how should investors be looking at that? Because I know you can, you mine more Bitcoin, but as you said, it's worth less. So the returns presumably are lower. How should we look at that? And how do you look at that? Yeah. So our fund is essentially a profitable enterprise. So what I mean by that is like every month we're selling Bitcoin, regardless if it's 60K or it's 20K. And unfortunately we have, and I don't like selling Bitcoin at 20K, but we have to pay our electricity bill, which means our profit margin is less. At these levels, our returns are very high. But when it's 60K, we were delivering 10% a month returns. So it just highlights how you know Bitcoin mining is potentially a leveraged bet into Bitcoin because when Bitcoin price goes up even 10%, our returns go up more than 10%. How we're navigating the down market right now is, first of all, it does highlight that there's a lot of miners and a lot of old miners that you know were profitable when it was at 30K, 40K, but they're not profitable when it's 20K. So they're plugging out, they're not plugging in. And so that helps our current operation from at least a production perspective. Ultimately, I'm a long-term investor of Bitcoin. I think that the price will be the same in five years. I mean, from a year ago, I, I thought that would be very high. I don't think anything I've seen highlights that it wouldn't, wouldn't be the, the same amount in five years. And so I'm not a trader. You know, I'm not, I, I would say buy a dip and it would dip again. I'll sell, sell, sell the top and it'll go, keep going up. That's not me. I'm not, I like, I'm an investor. I like cash flow. So this is sort of like dollar cost averaging. And so right now, dollar cost average is kind of low, which I think there's some great opportunities to essentially buy distressed assets and buy miners from you know, Celsius, for example, or other uh, companies that have other exposures. But I think from a perspective of the current fund, we're just trying to execute and deliver as much as possible. So because the fund, the same lifespan as the computers, it seems to make sense that if you wanted some exposure to Bitcoin mining, that every time there's a new fund, you kind of want to be in that one. So you get the fresh new computers. So you have a mix of the latest technology and maybe some of the less costly technology. So that as Bitcoin price is volatile, you'll, you'll kind of be collecting either way. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
the funny thing, you know, when Bitcoin's at 60K, everyone wants to invest in Bitcoin. Uh, when it's at 20K, everybody might be, you know, not so interested. You're essentially getting two times the production, lower cost basis and everything. But you're right, like every fund we've subsequently released, we've had lots of repeat investors from the first previous funds. They want a dollar cost average into a lower cost basis or different newer generation machines. And so just, uh, I think it's a much better way to essentially buy Bitcoin because you're likely to get more Bitcoin than you get more Bitcoin than if you bought it spot market. Plus you get the tax advantages and the monthly income. Right. So the distributions, when I invest with dollars and, and you pay in Bitcoin, now I know you can pay, you can get distributions in dollars if you want to, but typically it's, it's Bitcoin. So how does an investor calculate the returns given the volatility of the Bitcoin price and the conversion, right? So if you're trying to figure out where my actual returns, I don't know, because I gave you dollars and you gave me Bitcoin back. It's, it's just complicated. How, how do you look at that? We look at it at, a, at the monthly cost basis level. So whatever, every month we will sell that Bitcoin, where it's 24,000, and that's the cost basis that now gets transferred to you. And so if Bitcoin goes up or goes down, you know, if it goes up to 50K, your cost is still 24K and the returns you receive is at that cost basis. And we track it every month. Okay. And is that, is that something that investors can, I, this is totally off the podcast now and asking for myself personally, but so that's something that we can get out of the portal when, when that's up and ready so that we can then put that into our own software to, when we're calculating our own personal returns. Yeah. And plus for the K1s, we do provide all those information anyways. Okay, perfect. Awesome. All right. Well, that, that's great. So this is awesome. All this Bitcoin conversation. This is kind of what I wanted to get to because like I said, Bitcoin is complicated and it's volatile and you know there's a lot of different opinions on it so it's nice to hear from someone who's in it who's a bitcoin miner because i think as you said there's a lot of advantages if you want to get into bitcoin to getting in through the mining rather than buying it as you said on the spot market and those are depreciation and and can you just talk a little bit about the comparison if you're thinking about hey i want to get some money in bitcoin why the mining might be a better option than just going straight to buy in the Bitcoin? Yeah, I'll give you an example. For uh, you know, some recent investors, if they invested in Bitcoin when it was at 45K, which you know, for our more recent fund, that was sort of the price. If they just bought Bitcoin, they would be down X percent. If Bitcoin stays at around 29K, for example, they would break even from that investment basis. Uh, that just sort of highlights that there's an economic advantage of Bitcoin mining. It's a long option on Bitcoin. The K1s you get essentially represents, you know, profits and losses. The losses comes from taking a depreciation of 100% of the value of the miners, which usually constitute around 90% of the investment. So for, you know, when we deliver K1s earlier this year, some of our earlier funds, some people receive, you know, if you invested $100,000, you would have received, uh, some people have received like $95,000 in a K1 loss that year. That's nice. That's a good thing, right? So why would I invest in a Bitcoin fund instead of just going and buying a fancy computer and uh, mining it by myself, other than the fact that I have no idea how to do it? But why, if someone kind of knew a little bit, is it better to do it yourself or is it better to have someone else do it? And I, I'm guessing the answer is it's the same as if why I invest in somebody else who's buying multifamily properties instead of me buying them myself. That's basically economies of scale, right? I can get pricing in the hardware at the scale because of the huge amount of orders and the relationships I have with the manufacturers at close to 
40 to 50% of the basis that anybody else could do just buying one machine, the same machine. I can send you a link to it to buy that machine. And, and if you plug into your home, first your partner or your, your family might be very annoyed that it's generating a lot of heat and it's creating a lot of noise. It's running at 90 degrees Celsius sometimes, 70 to 90 degrees Celsius, so very hot. And it runs at you know, 150 to 170 decibels, so very loud. So you wouldn't want to have that in your home. Although I do know some people who put two or three miners in their home so they can create a, a heat sink to heat a pool. Very clever strategy. Residential energy is also typically two to three times more expensive than industrial energy where you can get it, especially through kind of energy we source from. So you can get worse economies of scale on the OPEX and worse economies of scale on the CAPEX. But I started you know, mining at home. I think if you want to learn technology and you want to just like, you can mine with an application using your computer. It's not going to make much Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a fancy Bitcoin miner, which is the most energy efficient and most productive type of machine for it. But you can use any kind of computer. Interesting. Well, this, is, this has been a fascinating Bitcoin conversation. I really appreciate it. The last question I uh, generally ask is, I don't know if you're a podcast listener or not, but if you are, what's a great podcast that you'd like to listen to that you could share with our audience? I've really enjoyed the All In podcast lately. It's a very good macroeconomic thesis of the economy and what's going on. And yeah, it's a bunch of fund managers talking about the funds and you know, the investments. It's been interesting to hear over the last six months what's going on. Yeah, I'm sure there's a great time to listen to that now that the markets are so crazy. So that, that's awesome. I'll put that in the show notes. And finally, if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Also go to our website, tozycapital.com, sign up, you know, happy to have a conversation with anybody. I'm here really to, to provide opportunities. And the opportunities I provide are ones where I'm super passionate about. And I love to just connect and talk about investing. Thank you. I will put that all in the show notes. Again, this has been fascinating. Appreciate your time. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Matt Piccini here to help you learn to produce passive income, write your own story, and direct your dollars toward positive change. My book, Backstage Guide to Real Estate, will take you through the highlights and the lowlights of my adventures in real estate, starting as a rank amateur just leaving the acting world all the way to where I am now, an owner of thousands of apartment units across the country. This book is my story in passive real estate investment. Yours will be different reflecting your priorities, goals, and sense of purpose, but I'm hoping that our stories will share one thing, the belief that passive investment is the road to financial freedom, and that you can use that freedom to improve your own life and the life of your family and leave your community, your country, and even the world a little better than you found it. Are you ready? <laughs> Good. Then go to Pacheni.com to get more info on the book. That was a great conversation with Aang. Such an interesting guy. And, you know, to be born in a refugee camp and come over to the United States and have the success he's had, it's amazing. It's great to hear, you know, that's the, one of the uh, American dream type stories. And I just think it's fantastic. Some of the stuff he was sharing with us, you know, multiple income streams. We've talked about that a lot where you, you want multiple income streams. But his take on it was it allows you to take chances. That's just a great way to look at it. You can be more risky with other investments or your employment or whatever you're doing because you know you have these other income streams that are not dependent on you doing this every day, right? It's passive income. It's coming in regardless. So you can take some chances. You can start a new business. You can 
you know, open a franchise. There's all kinds of things you can do because you know you have other income coming in. And it seems obvious, but I think when people say it, it's kind of like a light bulb moment. Like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. And I also liked how he said, here's what I'm doing. Follow me if you want to, to his colleagues and his family and friends when he was getting into this. And, you know, I've figured that out a little bit too with passive investing where I'm saying the same thing to people. I'm not trying to push them into anything. I'm not trying to pull them into anything. I'm just saying, hey, here's what I'm doing. You can do it too if you want. I'll help you. And, you know, I'm not in sales anymore, but man, that's such a great sales tactic is you don't want to push people. You don't want to pull people. You just want to show them what you're doing and say, hey, come along with me. If you think this is going to be successful, come along. I'll help you along the way. I just think it's brilliant. And Bitcoin is a battery. I go back and forth on this because it's so odd to me to think Bitcoin stores anything when it's just in the cloud and you can't really touch it. But the way it uses electricity and what I've been hearing is sometimes when the grid is over, has, is too much need, people are using it. The Bitcoin miners can all shut off and all of a sudden there's this excess energy. But then when there's low times, the Bitcoin miners use that energy. So it actually Bitcoin could, Bitcoin miners could make everything just a little bit more efficient. It sounds counterintuitive, but when you talk to people like Aang, you can kind of start, at least I can kind of start to comprehend this complicated stuff. And then the last thing he said, which really resonated with me, is he's not a trader. He's an investor. And that's the way I feel. I'm not a trader. I'm not a speculator, except for a small part of my you know, portfolio. And that's for fun and hopefully for some big size returns someday. But really, I'm an investor. And that's what Aang is. And that's the kind of people that I want to be partnered up with. So I really enjoyed hearing him talk. I enjoy following him and seeing where he goes. And so I really enjoyed that episode. So we'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.